Howdy do, y'all. I'm Uncle Drank, star of the ballad of Uncle Drank. It is a scripted musical podcast about the life and times of me, fictional golf and western country music pioneer, Uncle Drank. The series also stars Luke Wilson, Brian Kelly, Chelsea Lynn, Kinky Friedman, and Billy Zane as a talking blender named Blendy. You can find The Ballad of Uncle Drank on Sirius XM, Pandora, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to the Beyond 28 Podcast, presented by Chase, a show designed to keep the conversation around black history going all year long. We're going to continue to celebrate the excellence, the joy, and the love that is black culture and the black community. Each month, a new episode will explore the influence and impact black people not only have made historically, but also continue to make each and every day. I'm your host, Mark J. Spears, so kick back and relax as we get right into it. What is the value of an education? For some, it boils down to dollars and cents and the sheer earning power derived from an advanced degree. Because of a host of structural inequities, African Americans have largely been excluded from the generational wealth that has blessed many white families. These disparities are the result of centuries of discrimination that have blocked black families' access to the resources white families have typically used to build their own wealth. As such, the only way up the economic ladder is often through a college degree. In that sense, education has become a sword for many of us to cut through what has long been denied a fair stake in the system. That, at least, was the promise. Finish high school, go to college, earn a degree, and you will find yourself well on your way to a life of material rewards. It has become, in a post-industrial society, the only way to live the middle-class dream. College has been romanticized as a shortcut to happiness and a down payment on our future and our children's future. That, in turn, has fueled a raging college debt crisis that threatens to swallow an entire generation of borrowers. How ironic that the way forward has indentured a generation of borrowers to the company store after being told it was the only way up. Now, even before the COVID-19 pandemic, higher education has been facing a rising tide of mass poverty driven by shrinking numbers of wealthy white high school graduates as the country's population become increasingly Black and Latinx causing a disjuncture between the affluent students who know the hidden language of higher education and the lower-income students who seek degrees to get careers. In a recent interview with NAACP President Derek Johnson, he discussed with me how student debt is the number one issue for them as a group after voter rights as it strikes at the heart of opportunity. Black families are more likely to borrow, to borrow more, and to have trouble in repayment. Two decades after taking out their student loans, the average black borrower still owes 95% of their debt, whereas the median white borrower has paid off 94% of their debt. Beyond the current structural inequities in society are the historical inequities that created a ripple effect, redlining, which led to housing segregation that persists to this day, policies and racism that prevented many black soldiers from getting the benefits of the GI Bill, banks that refused to make loans to black people or offer them loans at higher rates. For younger students not contemplating higher education, their days in the classroom have become just as fraught. The battle over teaching children about racism in the nation's public schools has taken center stage in recent months. 
with five states passing bills to ban educators from teaching about racial equity. Republican-led efforts to prohibit such teaching has come in the wake of a summer of intense protests against racism and police brutality following the murder of George Floyd in May 2020. In many cases, critics have mistakenly called any effort to teach students about racism in the United States, critical race theory, or CRT, a decades-old academic framework intended to recognize the systemic racism inherent in American life. The controversy has invaded local school boards, prompting heated exchanges at meetings across the country. Most of the people discussing critical race theory aren't really discussing the theory itself, which is something taught in law schools, but not in K-12 classrooms. Instead, what these critics seem to be talking about is a brain dump of unrelated buzzwords related to the buzz topics in societies such as racism, privilege, diversity, equity, and inclusion. This episode deals with all of these issues as we speak with a cross-section of educators, coaches, and historians all weighing in on the state of education in 2021. First, we'll speak with Warriors head coach Steve Kerr, along with associate head coach Mike Brown, both of whom are the children of educators. Next, we'll speak with Soledad O'Brien, the legendary broadcast journalist on newsroom diversity and the role education plays in how we filter the news. Finally, in our rewind section, go back to the heyday of San Francisco's great Black-owned newspapers, illuminating a critical aspect of how we understand ourselves. You won't want to miss a beat. I'm your host, Mark J. Spears from ESPN's The Undefeated. Welcome to Beyond 28. With the education of Black history more important now than ever in American schools, we speak to Warriors head coach Steve Kerr and associate head coach Mike Brown about the place education and mentors have played in their lives and how they put lessons learned into their coaching. Start off with Mike Brown, Warriors associate head coach, and uh, also stopped in a lot of other places with the Lakers and the Cavaliers, man. Welcome to Beyond 28, Mike. Thank you, Mark. And uh, also the already coach that's a Warriors legend, Steve Kerr. Welcome to Beyond 28. Appreciate it, Mark. I think the first thing I want to do is, and I'll start with Steve, because, you know, your background with, you know, your late father being a great educator that he was, and maybe you could give some background if, if, you, if you'd like. How big has education been in your life? My parents were both educators, and my mom still is, actually, at 87. She still is teaching. Really? <laughs> yeah. She hosts the uh, Fulbright Scholars at UCLA, and she teaches a class, and she's still still active. So I still have that that dynamic in my life through her. And growing up, when my dad was a professor at UCLA, and it was a, just a huge part of our life, our social life kind of revolved around the faculty members that they were friends with from UCLA. And so I was the black sheep. I was I just wanted to play basketball, <laughs> but. Uh, no, it was a big, big part of our lives. Well, yeah, yeah, I mean, you, you needed some grades to get in Arizona. Well, maybe not. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> hey, watch out. <laughs> For you, Mike, you grew up with a military background. I don't know how much a role that played in your early education. And obviously getting into the University of San Diego, that wasn't uh, playing basketball there. Steve at the University of Arizona. Well, it wasn't an easy task getting into that school. My mom was also... Uh, a teacher for for a lot of years and you know not, not at the level that Steve's parents were she was a fourth grade teacher third grade teacher you learn a lot from from being around them you appreciate the fact that they're trying to help you know, young kids grow my dad was in the air force 
I didn't spend a ton of time around him. Uh, the one thing that I know that he brought home is the discipline aspect, and that kind of rubbed off on me. Steve, uh, and this is for both you guys, how do you incorporate what you learned in college into your coaching today? Well, I, I played for Lute Olson at Arizona, and, and so I got the ultimate example of uh, a coach who built a culture, you know, not just a a basketball team, but a culture that makes the foundation of the team so much stronger, which allows you to get through adversity that you inevitably are going to face every single year. Coach Olson came in 1983, and Arizona was at the very bottom of the Pac-10 at the time, and he turned it around quickly. We were in the NCAA tournament um, by his second year, my sophomore year. I learned from all of that, and I've taken a lot of what I learned from Coach Olson to my job with the Warriors, and especially the approach to, to culture and relationships and communication and, and trust. Steve, you've been uh, quite vocal about the importance of schools teaching African-American experience that much of your education was around, that, that much of your education is around the subject that has been whitewashed. Much of this episode and Beyond 28 deals with the issues of education, especially on the need for black history to be taught so all Americans understand the legacy of racism in this country. Right now, those lessons are under assault from figures on the right who believe that the so-called critical race theory is dangerous and that by teaching kids the truth about their past, we are somehow harming them. What are your thoughts about teaching these uh, crucial lessons in, in the black experience and, and the whole critical race theory debate? Where do we begin on this one, Mark? <laughs> this is a classic case of uh, modern society, political division slash sensationalized media slash misinformation. This is really not that complicated. The whole concept is, you know, let's, let's teach our children the truth about the African-American experience, right? So when, when I was growing up and I learned my American history, I learned some things about the African-American experience, but there were a lot of things omitted that were really crucial to understanding uh, race in our country's history, especially the things that were particularly horrific. And so what's, what's happened now is there's a desire from people like me for my children and, and other children to understand what African-Americans have gone through throughout our history. But politically and um, sensationally, there are figures who are screaming and yelling, we don't want to tell our children that they are racist. Now, how it got from educating them <laughs> to telling them that they are racist. I literally have had friends of mine who lean, you know, in that direction politically say, you know, it's a valid point. Nobody is asking an educator to walk into a kindergarten and tell a bunch of five-year-olds that they're racist. Yeah. What a lot of people are advocating is let's just learn the truth because the truth really has so much to do with the issues of today. Yeah, I, I just feel that, uh, you know, in, in many cases, white Americans are very ashamed of our history, and it's very difficult sometimes to look at at that shame. And so rather than look at the truth, we would rather just sort of bypass it and say, well, that happened a long time ago, and I didn't have anything to do with it. But the only way we can address 
real issues of racism is to truly understand the truth of what's happened in our past. And that's what critical race theory is about. It's, a, it's, it's just about teaching a, a young generation of people about our history and about what we can do to eliminate the mistakes that we've made in the past. Mike, last year for the National Teacher Appreciation Month, you broke the news to a group of teachers that the Warriors were donating 125000 for new technology. What did that day mean to you? What do you think about the teachers who were impacted by that money? It was, it was a fantastic day for me because my mom taught for years, my, my whole life. A lot of people, in my opinion, give the respect to teachers that, that they deserve, and I think it's one of the most important jobs out there. Uh, they're raising our youth. They're raising the next generation to keep society going forward in a positive direction. Steve, I did want to ask you real quick, and we, we've talked about this before. I know you're not looking for kudos on this, but I've always respected that you and Pop and Stan Van Gundy, you know, obviously Stan's not coach anymore, that you guys have always been allies for people of color, for black people, and spoken out when it hasn't been easy to speak out. And I do think that white voices in this struggle of racism matter strongly. What has given you that strength to speak out? And has anybody told you, like, Steve, why don't you just shut up? Why are you doing <laughs> Like, well, like well, well, you don't have to, like, I want to see what you thought on that. Hey, hey Mark, I've told Steve to be quiet because, you know, <laughs> I, I'm not worried about Steve walking in, in the hood in East Oakland. He's going to be okay. I'm, I'm worried about him walking in an all-white neighborhood. He might, be, <laughs> he might get jumped. Hey, look. All Steve got to do is put out a tweet and all of East Oakland will be covered to fight for it. <laughs> East Oakland, West Oakland, East Alamato, East San Jose. He got love in the Bay now. Don't mess with Steve uh, Kirk. That, that'll be a cal Calvary coming to help him. But go ahead, uh, Steve. No, I, first of all, I appreciate the compliment. Secondly, the, one of the reasons I love the Bay is that people generally agree with me on, on this stuff, whether they're from East Oakland or San Francisco. I feel like I share a lot of the uh, sensibilities and views on race and compassion and empathy for each other that people in the Bay Area do. This region really suits me and, and my personality and my, my values. And so it's really a lot easier to coach and to be able to speak out on issues that would be, you know, getting me in, in trouble in Texas or Florida, for example. Yeah. When I go to the grocery store, white people who come up to me every day and say, thank you for speaking out and thank you for saying the things you do. And it, it's really empowering for me. But for Greg Popovich, I've talked to him about this quite a bit. He gets a different reaction in the supermarket. But he has been probably my biggest mentor. I definitely learned from my parents the value of diversity and the importance of reaching out to people from different backgrounds. It's something that's in my blood anyway, but Coach Popovich is the one who gave me the courage to speak out publicly because I watched him do it. It meant a lot to me when he did it, and I decided to use my voice as well. Well, I, I try not to speak for black people, but for black folks and people of color, man, thank you. Sincerely. Appreciate that. Thank you. Saying, thank dude. you. A couple more questions and I'll let you guys go. And Steve, in, in 2012, you wrote a piece for Grantland arguing that the minimum age to the NBA should be raised to 20. Do you feel that player development benefits from better and more expansive education? 
Well, first of all, that was nine years ago. I no longer agree with myself from nine years ago. But some of that is because of the development of the uh, the G League in the NBA. I do believe that there should be an alternative for players who don't want to go to college. The G League is and the NBA is really trying to provide for that. Having said that, there's no doubt in my mind, just from my own basketball career, my colleagues from when I played to now my view as a coach and seeing players come through our program, there's no doubt in my mind that the, the players who go to college for at least a couple of years are so much better prepared for life, not only on the court, but off the court. And so I would still encourage every player to get some college experience because there's so much to learn. It's not just what you learn in the classroom or the basketball experience you gain on the court, but just life experience. You're 18, 19 years old. There's so much to, to learn. You And you got to be able to make mistakes and, and survive those mistakes. These days, it seems like you can't make a mistake in public. You know, you, you sort of get vilified and labeled by an unforgiving media and fan base. It's a difficult world that these young guys are entering in the NBA. So I think a college experience is really valuable. Yeah. Mike, what are your thoughts? I, I've always been a proponent of if you want to turn pro after high school, turn pro. I, it, there's one sport, American football, I think you need some time before you, you know, before you play in the pros just because it's it's a physical development aspect that comes into play when you're playing professionally in that particular sport. But I, I always felt it was unfair to tell a basketball player he's got to go to college for a year or two or three or whatever, but a tennis player or a hockey player or a baseball player can turn pro right away. I, I agree with Steve. I think that, you know, having the NBA in the G League system step up and uh, help better prepare these guys that may not have an opportunity to be able to play in the NBA at all or even right away, that's extremely helpful. But this is a free market. And, uh, and if somebody wants to take a swing at it, take a swing at it. Having said all that, I do think that, you know, being in an environment where there is help with player development, not just on court player development, but somebody there to kind of give you some guidance away from the court is extremely helpful. And almost every organization, if not all organizations, including most, if not all the G League organizations, they have people in place to help these young men along the way because the best teacher in my opinion is the best teacher out there is going through the experience i don't think there should be any age at all and i do think that the player development aspect is an important piece of any young adult's growth or development last question i'm gonna go with mike first and i know you guys love your kids all the same when, when you talk to your children from elementary school to them going to college what, what did you impose on them in terms of school and maybe what were you probably a little lenient and more understanding on what words of wisdom and where did you draw the line in terms of your own children and education for me i got it from my mom there's no question my kids had to finish college <laughs> that was the norm for us but always encourage my kids is you have a voice and use it even if you're a teenager it doesn't mean that the teacher is always right and if you disagree with something then speak up and there's a way to do it. My oldest one kind of took that to heart. If he doesn't feel that he likes something that's being said or that's going on, 
he'll speak up. <laughs> and and uh, he's going to handle any situation as he feels best. I don't know how well that has helped me as a father because he doesn't always listen to me now, and I wish he would. <laughs> Steve? Well, my wife and I, um, the, the main lesson we taught our kids really was fight your own battles. You know, that you got to handle your own business. And if you have a problem with a teacher, a coach, don't come running to us. You know, don't say, I need, I need mommy and daddy to come talk to the coach to get me more playing time or to come talk to the teacher to, you know, reconsider a grade. We just felt like it was really important to give our kids a lot of uh, freedom but with that freedom came the responsibility of fighting their own battles. And that was the main message we tried to get across. We just expected them to do well in school because that's the tone we set. You know, they, they, got, they got themselves in a little bit of trouble, but, you know, the good kind of trouble, you know, not, not too bad, but just good enough where, you, you know, you, you're learning and you're growing and you're having some fun. But you know, there was always the expectation that you got to handle your own business. Yeah. Well, the Warriors are blessed to have two great teachers and you both, man. Thank you for your Thank time. You. And, uh, Thank you, Mark. Need to get you guys on Beyond 28 again soon. There's a lot I could talk. I could talk to you guys all day. <laughs> Appreciate it, Mark. Always a pleasure. Solo Dan O'Brien has been a face on television since the late 1980s. She is a broadcast journalist who has worked her way up from reporting on the local beat, including in the Bay Area, to anchoring CNN's American Morning passionate voice for Black and Latino America, her status as a media star affords her the ability to confidently call out the lack of diversity and inclusion that still haunts most sections of broadcast news. An award-winning documentarian and philanthropist, I caught up with her while she was on vacation with her family. And the first thing I want to ask you about, I'm going to take you back to 2008 and your Black in America series. Can you reflect back on that? And what you hope sure. that America got from that, and I loved it. <laughs> I used to, for a long time. I have people, especially like in Atlanta's airport, who'd say, "I'm black in America. How come I'm not in this documentary?" <laughs> yeah. I really enjoyed that series, but what I liked about it was I loved that the network was behind it. You know, so it really had the full court press. Please explain it, because everybody. Oh, sure. Right. Of course. So we did a doc series in 2008 called Black in America. And we would do it for we ended up doing it for nine years. We did our last one in 2017. It was a great series that really looked at people talking about what it was to be black in America in 2008 on the cusp of the first black president, which, by the way, when we started, we didn't know Obama would be the first black president. So that was just kind of good timing and good luck. At one point, one of the executives said to me, so don't make it too black. You know what that means, right? Which is this idea that the <laughs> audience, of, I know it's called black in America, but the audience of CNN was a white audience. And I think for a long time, the viewership that's white was often considered to be valuable, right? And you just wanted to make sure you protected that at all costs. So you could do something, but don't scare people, I think is what they were really saying. And of course, by then I'd been there long enough that I was like, uh-huh, okay. <laughs> like, what does that even mean? Don't make it too... It's called Black in America. It went on to be really successful. Our very first one told the story of a Black family reunion in Atlanta. A woman who was kind of like the family genealogist who ends up meeting up with her relative, who's also the family genealogist. They loved going on those online sites where you could trace your records. One was Black, one was white, and they realized that their great-great-great-grandfather owned one side of the family and kind of 
how uncomfortable and awkward that was, but they decided to start doing family reunions together. And we looked at employment opportunities for black men, especially young black men, from some of the research done by a professor at Yale who found that young black men were less likely to be hired even young black men who'd never had any legal issues or hadn't served certainly any time incarcerated, they were last to be hired even behind young white men who had served time in prison. And so we really liked telling these stories, but undergirding it with a lot of data. And I think it was a very important series, did really well. So we got to do it for nine more years. I got to ask you this. How did you do it? Like, how did you convince them (laughs) in 2008 to do that, and this is important, and despite the don't make it too black, like, how did you do it? They, they asked me. They actually had asked Christiane Amanpour to do it first. But I think what we contributed yeah. to it was I think we made it good because we had to kind of tweak some of the stories and really make sure that we were telling things that were tough but true and I think showed people in a dynamic sense. For example, we did a story on Michael Eric Dyson's brother and his brother had spent some time in prison. Michael had cut a different path. And so I, I think what we wanted to do was to tackle complex and complicated stories about the black experience in America. And when we started, I think people wanted to do things that were a little lighter. So the hard part was a lot of the stories that I would do sometimes on minority communities were what a friend of mine likes to call good black people, you know, like they have 20 foster kids. And this is a guy who's, he walks 25 miles to work. I mean, all fine stories, but I don't think that those are, you know, and, 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 (laughs) and exactly. I think that's exactly right. So I I thought that that's what we added, but it really was Cristiano Mabor was asked first. (laughs) And then when I heard that they were doing it, I said, Ooh, I really would like to be involved in that. That's a hell of a fun fact. You often speak a point of view in television news. Framing what you hear can be as important as the facts reported. Can you explain the notion to my listeners and how the lack of African-American representation on television airways and in, in executive ranks oftentimes affect the framing of the news? Sure. I'll give you a great example. And I think it's one that we've seen. George Floyd is a very good example of it, but it way predates George Floyd, which is When I started as a local reporter in San Francisco in 1993, what we found was that the coverage of the police was very biased in a way. You assume the police were essentially the word of God. If the police said, John, usually it was always three names, right? If someone was guilty, John Michael Smith, (laughs) you know, did such and such, you know, it was reported as fact and the police were often the sole voice in a story or the resource. And and often you'd go into a community. For example, when I worked as a producer in Boston, um, we had a very famous case called the Charles Stewart case. I don't know if you remember that case. Charles Stewart was a guy who was in his car with his pregnant wife when he claimed a black man jumped in the back of his car and shot his wife. He, He was shot himself, but his wife was killed. And they tried to save the baby. They couldn't save the baby going off of what Charles Stewart had said to us, there was this manhunt for this mysterious black guy who had said, the one quote from the guy was, he saw the, back in the day when cell phones were this big, he'd seen the cell phone and thought it was 5-0, meaning cops. And I remember my job was to interview people and people in the community would say, that makes no sense. Like, that's not how people talk. That, that's just not, it can't be. But police went on this manhunt looking for the black guy who hopped in the back and eventually found a guy 
who in their minds matched the description. Well, it turned out that at the same time, the dead wife's family was having some suspicions about Charles himself. He had been having an affair, and it turned out that he was the one, it seemed, had killed his own wife. Right? The whole thing was made up. But the entire city went on a manhunt for a guy who didn't exist and found a guy, found a black guy to, to pin it on. And so it's a really good example of when you don't have enough people around the table or you don't have enough people of color to say, actually, let me give you another perspective. Actually, this thing may not be true. Actually, in our community, police frequently lie. Actually, someone saying, oh, mistaking a car with a cell phone for 5-0. In the Black community, people in Boston were saying that just doesn't happen. But no one was really bringing that back to the newsroom to say there's something wrong with this story. And that happens. I, I think policing is a very good example. And so I think what you're seeing now are newsrooms where people are a little more reluctant to take the word of the police as the only source, as opposed to treating them like a source with a vested position in the story, right? Police say this, this lady who was standing on the stoop says this, these are all people who have a different perspective. And I think that's been a very good change, but it's been a long time in coming. If you don't have people in the room, you get a lot of bad coverage. You don't have someone pushing back on stories that are just wrong. When we did our Latino in America doc, we were going around the table and we started having a debate. We're Puerto Ricans Americans. And I was like, yes, and we can just Google that. Like, we, we don't need to debate that. And I remember thinking, this is a room full of people where we're arguing about something that is just a fact versus we should be debating what's the best story to tell. But there are not enough Latinos in this room. So we're stuck way down here. And that happens a lot. So I, I do think... If you don't have a diverse team telling stories and you don't jump in and tell your own story, you might not recognize yourself in a story at all, you know, because someone else is, is using their lens to tell your story. Well, I, I can only imagine how many people were in that position. Yeah. So in New Orleans, in New Orleans, the night before I started, um, Aaron Brown was doing the newscast. And I remember he called people in New Orleans refugees. We walked in that next morning. Everybody had a Merriam-Webster dictionary. And we were like, they are not refugees, they are evacuees. And we literally had to fight for it. But I think one of the reasons we fought hard for it was because Kim was from New Orleans, right? And she's like, oh, oh, hell no, these are not refugees. But imagine if that person yeah. hadn't been there as an executive in my ear, and I was the anchor of the morning yeah. show, and we would have covered it in a different way because we didn't know any better or we didn't care or it didn't matter to us. And so I think that's a very good example of, as well of our coverage of Katrina was very good at CNN, mostly because there were people who cared about those narratives. Well, thank you for that. My family thanks you for that because that was very painful for to hear that. So thank you. We recently spoke to Derek Johnson at NAACP. One of the more important initiatives for them beyond fighting for voter rights is the elimination of African-American student debt. And what would it do for future generations? I'm curious as someone who has staked an interest in driving equality and diversity in news, how this could change the makeup of American newsrooms. According to one statistic, are only 6% Black. Yeah, I'm not surprised by that. And, and unfortunately, those numbers aren't growing. When I started in the newsroom in 1987, the numbers were about the same. I mean, they're terrible. And the numbers for Latinos have actually dropped. I mean, it's really disheartening. 
part of the challenge, and there have been some changes, are in how you can work in a newsroom. When I was an intern, internships were unpaid. Well, then guess what? Guess who, who that means is going to have an internship? That's someone who can live with their mom and dad, as I could. My parents had an apartment in New York City. I got to live rent-free. In fact, they made me dinner, and I could hang out with them because I was able to do my internships or work at a very, very low salary because I had parents who were essentially supporting me. Well, there are lots of people who cannot work for free. There are plenty of people who say, I can't have a job where I lose money in order to commute in and out. And recently, newsrooms have started to compensate their interns. But if you don't do that, you're going to end up with an internship population, which is then eventually your employee population. That's upper middle class. And those are not people who have to get out of college and make a lot of money fast because they're heavily in debt. They are people whose moms and dads can afford to fund them. And I think that's very problematic. You can't say that you'd like to see more diversity and then not make it easier for people to access jobs. I think it's pretty important. As an Afro-Latino woman, you must have a lot of people tapping your shoulder for advice or help. I can only imagine how many people have asked you, what can I do to be you? What a great compliment, honestly. And, and it's the same number of people, to be honest, that when I started my company, I tapped and said, I'm trying to be an entrepreneur, but I'm not sure I know what I'm doing. Can I ask you some stupid questions about how you run a business? I read off a teleprompter for a living. I've never had to do a budget or project out my next five years or think about how I create a staff. You know, and I had tons of people tons who'd say, okay, let's meet for lunch and we'll bring notebook and pen and we'll sit down and I'll answer your questions. And so I think when you go into it, trying to be helpful to people, you really reap the benefits of people trying to be helpful right back to you. We run a small foundation. We send girls to and through college. And it's been a great experience because there's so many people who just struggle with the money part of it. They're certainly smart enough. They're certainly hardworking enough. College is really expensive. And also, if you are poor, you don't get a lot of second and third chances. If you're middle class, you know, you can mess something up. When I was at Harvard my first year and I had spent on my phone bill, I had a $400, you know how hard it is, I have a $400 phone bill. And there was no conversation that I, you know, was I going to go back to Harvard for my next semester? There was no sense of, we just don't have the money, right? It was, you are in deep trouble, Missy. You know, but I was certainly going back to school. For a lot of the young women, we send girls to college. If you have a $400 bill that you can't get paid, you don't pay it and you don't have a phone and then you don't go back to college. You have a mistake and it can be the end of the road. So what we've tried to do and what I've always tried to do is like give people more opportunities. Not everybody takes advantage of them. And I think people give me opportunities. You know, I get to come back and say, oh, I've really messed this up. Can you, can I, can you explain it to me again? And I think that's kind of what makes the world go around a bit. Um, one of the positive outcomes from last summer's protests in the wake of George Floyd's murder was a greater focus on social justice and issues affecting the Black community. I'm curious, a year later, how much of that has actually stuck around in a newsroom and reporting? Or do you feel like these measures were largely performative, allowing these organizations to pat themselves on the back and move on to business as usual? I always say, like, look, we got receipts. So make sure you keep those receipts and remember what everybody said. I think there has high potential to be long-term positive impact. But I think these are the kinds of things that you constantly have to 
wave your receipts. Like, remember when you said, let me read you back your quote about what you exactly said a year ago. People slide. I do believe a lot of that focus on social justice from media organizations and even just people who maybe historically never really cared that much about social justice. I think, I think it was true. I, I've met with so many organizations that genuinely are trying to figure it out. A lot of these are very uncomfortable conversations and they're difficult conversations, right? It's not, you know, we're going to focus on it for three days, maybe do some conferences and solve the problem by next week. It's not, it's a, it is a, how do we hire people? How do we think about what we should be doing? What are we doing wrong? What are we doing right? Like those are tricky questions that are very layered and complicated. And so they're not easily solved. So I think what you're seeing are many organizations that do care and are actually putting systems in place to make hiring changes. And I think you're seeing, of course, some places that, you know, I had a CEO tell me, he's like, I do not care about this issue. We put out a hashtag Black Lives Matter, but I'll be honest with you. He said, I do not care. And I'm like, okay, well, just know you're missing out on a large part of the population. I personally believe that's going to, you know, come back and, and bite you eventually. But I, I guess I appreciated his honesty. I think there is a genuine interest in making change. And I think the start to making change is to start tracking the numbers and tracking how you're doing. And we see many organizations now. That's a big step. Now, of course, it's not enough, but it's a very good start. Lastly, Soledad, I wanted to ask you about your time in the Bay Area. What were your fondest memories, your, your biggest challenges? And I love I, the Bay Area. I had my, yeah. my old boss at NBC called it God's country. He said, San Francisco Bay is God's country. And it really is breathtaking. You know, when you come out of the airport and you start heading into the city of San Francisco, I mean, what a beautiful sight. I loved it because it's where I learned to become a reporter. There were just so many. I spent so much time covering strippers who wanted to unionize in San Francisco. I mean, just like it was a great city for news because there are always Everything. lots of crazy stories and important stories. And so it was a great city, but it was also, I was such a newbie. And so uh, every day I was making mistakes and learning and making mistakes. And so I, I got married when I was out in San Francisco with my husband, but I, uh, I knew I'd always come back to the East Coast because it was so far. And I really, you know, I missed a lot of stuff in the five or so years that I lived in San Francisco, but I really did enjoy it. It's God's country. It's gorgeous. It's beautiful. One of the most important ways of keeping African-Americans educated and informed has been as black press. The first black newspaper, the Freedom's Journal, was published in 1827. Its mission was to enlighten and elevate America's black population. At the industry's height, every American city had its own black newspaper, which was published daily or weekly. We speak to Professor Ava Thompson Greenwell at Northwestern University and Mary Ratcliffe, publisher of the San Francisco Bayview, to give us an overview of the history of America's Black press. My name is Ava Thompson Greenwell. I'm a journalism professor at the Medill School of Journalism at Northwestern University, and I'm also the author of Ladies Leading, the Black Women Who Control Television News. So the first Black newspaper in the United States was Freedom's Journal, and it was published by Reverend Samuel Cornish and John Russworth. The owners really wanted to create a space for African-Americans so that they could speak for themselves. I think when we think about the African-American press, we certainly think about Frederick Douglass. 
and the North Star newspaper. As a matter of fact, I think most people think that was the first black newspaper. We know Frederick Douglass because of his autobiography, the fact that he was enslaved prior to becoming the publisher of a newspaper. He too writes about freedom and the importance of freedom and how it actually can change people's minds. In the 1860s, the newspapers The Elevator and The Pacific Appeal were founded in San Francisco as a result of a new black population that had moved to the area after the gold rush. After the Civil War, we see New York as being one of the epicenters of a lot of newspapers. And one of the reasons is because New York had one of the highest concentrations of literate black folks, particularly those who had been free as well as those who had gotten there and had attained their freedom. The other point that I think is really important to make is that in 1891, I Garland Penn actually chronicled the careers of early black journalists, men and women. And this book is really thick. It's about close to 400 pages. And each person gets maybe four or five pages in terms of a bio. That means that he was chronicling hundreds of black journalists who in the 1890s and beyond had established their newspapers. So certainly when we get into the 1900s, we're now moving into um, post-Reconstruction and also into the Jim Crow era. I think about newspapers like the Los Angeles Sentinel, the uh, Washington Afro-American, the Amsterdam News. But more importantly, I also think about the Chicago Defender in terms of its role in particular to encourage Black people in the South to want to move North. So I, I think it's not surprising that the African-American press during the 1960s was in the forefront of actually covering all the protests, uh, the, the movements that were happening. Because again, if you go back to 1827, we know that those newspapers had been covering Black people because they are part of the community. One of the things that I do in my book, Ladies Leading, the Black Women Who Control Television News, is talk about the four mothers and that is the black women who were in newspaper spaces and who really paved the way for other women to come behind them. And so Charlotta Bass was one of those women who was editor and publisher of the California Eagle newspaper from 1912 to 1951. Well, she would write about the Ku Klux Klan. They would show up at her office. She would pull out her pistol to get ready for them. She talked about the telephone company in California and how it wouldn't even allow Blacks to sweep the floor. She's really, really keeping her hand on the plow for making sure that these inequities get exposed on the West Coast. And again, we don't know much about Charlotta Bass, but she was a bad mother. Mary Radcliffe is a veteran co-publisher and former editor of the San Francisco Bayview newspaper. There were already two well-established papers when we took on the Bayview. There was one in, in San Francisco and one in Oakland. The Oakland, was, uh, Oakland paper was called the Oakland Post. It still exists. The San Francisco paper was the San Francisco Sun Reporter, which also still exists. And both of them have proud histories of having led various movements and uh, made positive change in the Bay Area. Once home to the Ohlone people, Bayview Hunters Point is a black heartland of San Francisco. This neighborhood became the primary black neighborhood and still is to the extent that there are even any black people left here. Just a few thousand is all. There was a small paper uh, right here in this neighborhood. 
called The New Bayview. The publisher's name was Muhammad Al-Kareem. He had had it since 1976. I kept offering to help him with the paper and try to get it out more often. And finally he admitted, well, it wasn't a matter of not having the stories or not being able to put the paper together. It was a matter of being able to pay for the printing. He came by one day and he said, if you can come up with $2,000 by five o'clock this afternoon, you can have the paper. When I got to thinking about it, I thought, oh my God, this would be just an ideal way of bringing the community together. The first one was published on February 3rd, 1992. There was a period in the early 2000s when we were getting over 2 million hits a month on our website. We never could afford to print more than 20,000 papers, but those papers disappeared immediately when we put them out. One of the first issues that we took on was environmental justice. We didn't understand environmental racism at the time. We won that. We won that against the big PG&E power plant. We shut that power plant down. We had a writer, a young writer, who was just sick and tired of the way he was treated by the police, and he decided to start writing about police brutality. We were the first paper in the country that regularly wrote about that. It developed into the campaign to hold BART police accountable for the egregious killing of Oscar Grant. Oscar Grant was a young man killed by the BART police on New Year's Eve when he was riding back with his friends from San Francisco. It was in front of a whole trainload of people, many of whom had their phones, and they turned them on and they recorded it. The campaign to hold the police accountable and the DA accountable was led by that young writer. He got out on the street and started leading marches, and he did that repeatedly. We want the release of the names and suspension of all the officers complicit on the scene during the murder of Oscar Grant on January 1st, 2009 at the Brookvale Park Station and the expedient involvement of the California Attorney General and the Department of Justice. That technique of repeated marching was picked up in Ferguson when Mike Brown was killed by the police. Our young writer went back there to meet the, um, the organizers against the police in Ferguson, and they acknowledged that, yes, indeed, they had gotten their technique from Oakland. So we were very proud that it had spread that far. We felt very, very vindicated. We felt that we were really seeing the fruits of our labor in the spring and summer of 2020 when people all over the world were marching in their horror at what had happened to George Floyd. What do you want? Justice! When do you want it? Now! What do you want? Justice! When do you want it? Now! The other campaign that I want to mention it had the, a result of the, being the proudest moment of my life. We started working with prisoners way back at the beginning when we first took on the paper. And they would send us wonderful commentaries, and they weren't asking for any money, and we didn't have a lot. Now we have thousands and thousands of subscribers all over the country in prisons in every state. And they use uh, our paper as a sounding board, as a, as a platform for developing new strategies on how to get free and how to abolish prisons. We're very definitely prison abolitionists. Unlike almost any other newspaper, we have to stay in print because our core readership 
is in prison and in the hood, in very, very low-income areas. Um, our paper is a big favorite in homeless encampments. Poor people love our paper. Poor people depend on our paper. Those are all people who have no access or very little access to the Internet. That will change, I suppose, over time. And as it does, we can stop printing. For now, we're still printing, and the paper is still avidly being read. I want to try to train people in having the courage to say the truth, having the courage to speak truth to power. With the reporting on Black America's woes and the triumphs moving to the World Wide Web, it's apt that you've downloaded this episode from the Internet, and we should remember the words of Dr. Mae Jemison, the first African-American female astronaut Never be limited by other people's limited imaginations. Listen again in 30 days' time as we discuss Black struggle and we celebrate African-American achievement here in the Bay Area and across America. Thank you for listening to our Voices of Education. Beyond 28 is brought to you by the Golden State Warriors and Chase. I'm your host, Mark J. Spears. y'all i'm uncle drank star of the ballad of uncle drank it is a scripted musical podcast about the life and times of me fictional golf and western country music pioneer uncle drank the series also stars luke wilson brian kelly chelsea lynn kinky friedman and billy zane as a talking blender named blendy you can find the ballad of uncle drank on sirius xm pandora stitcher or wherever you get your podcasts